Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Last week, Arkansas carried out four executions in eight days. Today, we discuss the death penalty in the United States. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Y'all, today is a big day in pantsuit politics history. We're launching our first annual membership drive. Yay! (laughs) So we're really excited. Pantsuit politics uh, has become more than Beth and I ever dreamed possible. It's so much more than a podcast at this point. It's a community, and we really want to give it the time and attention that the podcast and all of you deserve. And we need the resources to make that possible. So we have joined Patreon, which a lot of you have been asking us to do for a while. And it allows us to give you so much more as supporters of the show than a free t-shirt and the occasional shout out. We have several different levels of support all the way from $1 a month to $100 a month if you want to become an executive producer of Pantsu Politics, which is really awesome. We'll talk about that maybe on another episode as we work through our membership drive. But for $15 a month, you get an extra episode a month that will only go to our Patreon supporters. And we're going to make some changes to the Pantsuit Primer universe. Beth, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so our primers are an important part of what we do here. They are also probably, from a time standpoint, one of the more labor-intensive intensive things that we do. So we don't want to 
take those away from anyone, but we are going to put them up only for a week in our feed. And then if you want to have evergreen access to the primers, that will be for our Patreon supporters. We've set really big goals for ourselves so that we can produce more content and host events and do a lot of other things. We have a very clear vision at this point. Y'all, it is really uncomfortable for me to talk about money in any form. I'm Southern and we don't do that. And so this, this is tough, but I want to tell you that I feel like time is the only constraint on Pantsy Politics and what the community of people who are involved in it can accomplish. And so your support is really important to us and it's something that we're very grateful for. So we've um, set some big goals, but we also have really thought through carefully the perks that we're provided. So go to patreon.com forward slash pantsuitpolitics, or you can go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and click become a supporter and that will take you to our Patreon page and you can check everything out. We also have a very exciting perk. Anyone who becomes a supporter this week until next Tuesday's episode will be invited to our first ever Q&A, which is a monthly perk usually only available to those at the $50 a month level. But if you become one of our first supporters and you go to Patreon and you support the show in this first week of our membership drive as we try to meet our goals, then you get to go to the first Q&A. It's going to be awesome. So we're really excited. We've worked really hard to make these um, to give a lot of value because Money is hard to talk about. It's hard to give. And we want to be good stewards of it, as we say in the South. So please check out our Patreon page and support the show, y'all. It means the world to us. Sarah, do we want to talk about when we meet our first goal, what we're going to do? Sure. What are we going to do, Beth? So when we meet our first goal, you'll see on the Patreon site that we have several like milestone goals that we've set for ourselves. When we meet the first one, we are going to do a little series that we have sort of this working title for of the nuanced life. So we're going to talk about more than politics. There is kind of a framework that we've gotten from a great New York Times article about some very big questions that we should all ask ourselves in life. So we're going to produce kind of a little mini series on those questions once we hit that first milestone. And there could be lots more of these. That's the idea behind the membership drive is we get the resources to pour the time into expanded content live events, all these types of things that you guys asked for, and we just need the resources to make happen. So we really appreciate it. It means the world to us. Go check out pantsypoliticsshow.com and click become a supporter in the top right-hand corner. We have a packed agenda today, so we're going to dive right in with the pearls. Another federal court has restrained the Trump administration from implementing an, an executive order. President Trump issued an executive order purporting to say that sanctuary cities, which is kind of a misleading term, it might be more accurate to say sanctuary jurisdictions, cannot receive federal funding. Now, you might recall from earlier discussions that sanctuary cities or are jurisdictions that have decided they're not going to use local law enforcement to serve as essentially an extended arm of the immigration enforcement services of the federal government. That's all they're doing. They're just saying, we're not using our local police to do immigration work. The administration obviously takes offense at that and has tried to say, okay, then you don't get any federal money. And a federal district judge has said, you cannot do that. And there are, it's a really interesting opinion. I don't know how much time you've spent with it, Sarah. It's another fascinating standing analysis. And this judge says, essentially, There are 10th Amendment reasons why the federal government can't overreach in this way. And if you want to take away funding, that funding has to be closely tied to the purpose. So if the federal government were giving cities dollars to use law enforcement in this way and cities didn't do it, then the government could withhold those funds. But this kind of overbroad thing that Trump purported to do doesn't work. What I thought was most interesting about the order was that the government advanced the argument in the order that this is really just the president using his bully pulpit and that the order should be read so narrowly that the court said it basically rendered the order meaningless. And I think that's kind of what this was. I think it was sort of all hat and no cattle. Mm -hmm. And maybe the Trump administration didn't intend much other than to kind of keep the base fired up. I'm not sure the Trump administration ever intends much beyond keeping the base riled up. 
Well, from a Republican standpoint, I feel really convinced that sanctuary cities are a a Republican kind of ideal if we mean that we are a, a limited government party. Now, I'm not sure that we do or that we mean much of anything in a uniform way anymore. But as somebody who really believes in local problem solving, in power being as close to problems as possible, to me, the idea of the federal government telling a city or a county how it can use its law enforcement resources is abhorrent. And I think we ought to be upholding cities and counties who make these decisions as like shining examples of what local control looks like. The federal government has no idea what kind of resources these jurisdictions have and what demands at a local level are being placed on those resources. I just, I don't understand why conservatives find sanctuary cities so problematic. Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't seem to fit with the idea of everything, just the the local control versus federal overreach at all. And I guess it comes down to, in the grand scheme of things, many conservatives care more about immigration and what they perceive as violations of the immigration system than they care about local government control. So reflecting on his first 100 days, President Trump seemed to indicate that he did not expect to have to deal with federal judges restraining him, or North Korea firing test missiles, or a host of other things that he's been dealing with. I mean, this interview makes me so furious. So I'm just going to read the quote that and just envision if you can, while I read the quote, that my head is spinning around backwards, like in the exorcist, because that's how angry it makes me. I loved my previous life. I had so many things going. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. I cannot express how furious that makes me. The privilege and entitlement and ego and just complete and total obliviousness encapsulated in that quote is beyond my capacity for patience or nuance or much of anything. If you want to find a silver lining, (laughs) Ah, go for it. I mean, at least there's the beginning of some humility. Uh. I think it is jarring. This is what I said about it when we posted on social media. I mean, I don't think there's anything surprising in this interview, but it is jarring to see it laid out in such a stark way and to hear the words actually come out of his mouth. But I guess I'm glad that he at least is capable of some kind of reflection and is thinking about this and recognizing that it's more of a challenge than he thought it would be. It also, to me, just affirmed that like he didn't set out to win. And he hadn't thought much about what he would do if he did. And maybe he was as caught off guard by his victory as all the rest of us were. I thought the part that was so interesting, and I don't know why this little piece jumped out at me, but he talked about how he misses driving, that he really liked driving. They and all he misses say driving. that. Biden but said I that. Thought, like, Obama said that. They all say that. How much did, was he driving before this? I don't yeah, know. I mean, he lived in I New thought York that was City. weird. Like, he was like hopping in a car. I don't... I just, what bothers me, like, America, can we agree not to elect anybody else that didn't have any public service experience, please? I don't ever want to hear this quote out of a president's mouth again. It is too big of a job. It is too important. There are too many things on the line to elect someone who doesn't understand what they're up against. I keep thinking about the interview with the George W. Bush staffer where he says, nothing gets to your desk unless it's impossible to solve. If it was possible to solve it, it wouldn't have gotten there in the first place. Somebody else would have fixed it. And like, I just, the, the lack of curiosity about the most powerful position in the world before you run is just so mind blowing to me that you don't understand the responsibility and how hard this is and what's on the line. Oh, I just, I, oh, I cannot handle it. I was just thinking about like how angry people, when we talk about um, like strangers in their own land and this frustration so many Americans feel with people who exploit our welfare system feel like you, I guess I can channel that because that's what I feel when the entitlement 
expressed in that statement comes at me like that. I don't care about people buying steaks with food stamps. Like I just, I don't, I can't get riled up about it. But the entitlement of somebody that wealthy just thinking, oh yeah, like my, this, this president thing will be easy. It's sort of the shout and forward I've enjoyed so much with the fire festival controversy going on this week. Like, oh, it just makes me so mad. He's also been successful in a very particular type of business that is not as contingent on sort of bringing out the productivity in others as many other industries are. You know, he he had that quote, and I can't remember if it was in this Reuters piece or elsewhere, where he said, this requires heart, business doesn't, but this is all about people and heart. Mm-hmm. Well, like a lot of businesses are all about people and require a lot of heart, too. Well, you know, you his can't business, run a- yeah, even if you're building hotels, that affect people's lives. When you're the king of debt and you weren't paying your bills, just because you were heartless in that pursuit doesn't mean it didn't affect other people. But he also wasn't running the kind of organization where he needed lots and lots of people all swimming in one direction. And, you know, I, I think he might have a different perspective. He was successful in the business that was just cutthroat. Mm-hmm. A lot of his businesses failed. And I think that might be because he hasn't got that managerial style and that leadership style that really brings people together for common purposes and keeps them motivated and engaged. So it kind of frustrates me that he is going to be like, there was this opportunity. I was chatting with someone about this at Vox Conversations. There was this opportunity to bring someone outside of the bubble in, in a way that could have been productive. And we played that card on Donald Trump, you know, who I think is the worst representative of what that looks like. And now I think the public is going to be like, no, 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 we're not doing that again. No, 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 mm-hmm. that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And that's too bad because I think there are a lot of other people. And I'll, do I think that the president should be your first office? No, I don't. I agree with that. But there are a lot of other people who I think could bring a lot into government and who haven't gone about getting there in traditional ways who would be better public servants than what we're seeing. Well, and it's just so frustrating to me because I, the other thing I often think about him is I'm not really sure he has been that successful. I don't think he was an incredibly successful real estate magnet. I don't think he was an incredibly successful, even like sort of celebrity. I mean, I viewed him as B-list my entire life, even after the Celebrity Apprentice. And he was always sort of a half joke to a lot of people, including in the real estate world. So, the you know, it's always sort of was, you know, confusing to me why people see him as this sort of symbol of success he inherited money he has done okay with the money he inherited but it's not like he is a real estate tycoon it's not like he is a you know incredibly i don't know i don't know if there is a level of success as a real estate star i'm willing to entertain but i mean or reality show star maybe like carrie underwood like i'll give you her (laughs) it's about i don't want to take anything away from he has accomplished a lot he has made a lot of money he has created jobs and properties, whatever. It's how you define success, though. Is his success the kind that you're going to really put a premium on? No. I do understand how a lot of Americans, particularly Americans who have not prospered economically over the past 10 to 20 years, see in him a a, a huge amount of success. And so I don't know that that's a point worth arguing with a Trump supporter. I, I am frustrated that he is becoming representative of what a business person does, because I don't, I, there are lots of different ways to be business people, and he is not emblematic of all of them. So Beth and I are both alumni of Transylvania University, which was very sadly in the news last week as a former student has allegedly attacked with a knife some students in a cafe and was uh, as according to reports, was calling people out based on their political affiliation and specifically attacking Democrats. And we, I believe that he wrote a response to or sort of a related piece to Tracy Clayton's piece in BuzzFeed on the BuzzFeed community board. And we talked about his piece on the show, did we not, Beth? We did. I cannot believe that is the same person. I mean, I can't believe any of this. I felt so safe while I was at Transylvania. I was an RA and then later um, a head advisor for the RA staff, and I walked around campus at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning behind buildings to check that doors were locked. I never for a second 
could imagine something like this happening there. Well, it was it upset me a little bit more than I expected because it's hard to convince yourself that violent attacks in our society are random when one happens at your high school and also at your college, both which are small and not particularly uh, large, well-known institutions. So it really upset me. I'm really impressed by the way the president of Transylvania has handled the um, incident. He talked, He apparently he ran towards the attack when something was going wrong. Oh, and there's like the most amazing reports of the uh, staff at the cafe. They did the panic button and one of the staff members waved a chair and distracted the attacker from a group of students. And she had this great quote. It kind of makes me tear up. Like she was like, there are babies. We take care of them. Like I would never let anything happen to these kids. And like it just brought back this flood of memories of all the amazing staff at Transylvania during my time there and um, how wonderful they were to be around us and how they did really see us as their kids and take care of us. And, you know, it's just heartbreaking because especially at a place like Transylvania, that's so small and insular and where you do feel like you're, you know, they call it the transy bubble. It's even, I I know firsthand from my experience at the shooting at my high school, that when something like that happens and sort of pops the bubble of protection you feel, it's even more traumatic and jarring. And so I just send all my love to the, the community that is so dear to my heart. Agreed. It's horrible. I'm so glad that the damage was minimized, at mm-hmm. least of this awful attack. And I, you know, I, I pray for the person who did it too, because I, I can't imagine what would make you, um, I, I just can't imagine what would make you do this. And I also want to say, like, I attended Transy and I went from being a very conservative person to a very liberal person. But, and, and I understand the concerns about college campuses and sort of lack of opinions and blah, blah, blah. But like, I never felt like at Transy that people were uncomfortable being conservative. Like I got in a lot of arguments, passionate arguments with conservative people who were felt just fine voicing their opinions. And maybe it's changed since our time there. But I felt like it was a it was it's not Berkeley, like there's there's lots of conservatives there. So I I, I was kind of bummed to see like this sort of partisan tent of the story being attached to a place that I really never felt was particularly closed-minded. Did you feel that way during your time there, Beth? It didn't even feel political to me at Transy. I felt like it was a place where every idea was going to be challenged. We were going to hear from lots of different speakers and thinkers. We were going to be exposed to all kinds of different philosophies. I never felt like I was, I I would never have described Transylvania as a left-leaning school. Or right leaning, right? Mm-hmm. It just, it, and, and some of that is the time, I'm sure that it just wasn't like that in society, I think, when we were in college. Right. Um, it, it, we weren't so blatantly partisan, but I never, ever felt uncomfortable in any setting at Transylvania. It just felt like a very intellectual place to me where anything that you said, someone was going to ask you a lot of questions and they were going to be really smart questions and you were going to come out of the conversation better. Well, in the spirit of bipartisanship we learned at Transylvania University, we will move on and compliment the other side. My compliment this week is coming from a listener, Jamie, who emailed us and said, I would like to suggest a compliment the other side for an upcoming episode. I live in Milwaukee and have been really interested in the attention my state has been getting since the election. When the president came to Kenosha last week, um, he gave an interview with a local TV station and praised Senator Tammy Baldwin for her Buy American policy. And we'll link to an article that um, Jamie sent us, but she said Baldwin is up for re-election next year, and it would have been easy for him to play party politics in the moment. It was so refreshing to see that he wasn't a jerk. Now I see that Baldwin is supporting his pick for Secretary of Agriculture, which is even more encouraging. This is honestly the last thing I expected from either of them. I wasn't sure that was going to vote for Baldwin again because of her unwillingness to compromise, and now I'm reconsidering. My compliment is for Heather Boucher who is an economist that I heard speak at Box Conversations. I really appreciated the distinction that she made between income inequality and wealth inequality. And I thought the way she talked about how important it is for us to look at the economy more holistically was helpful. What I found really compelling, because I, I don't, I don't worry so much about income inequality. I do worry about wealth inequality. I worry about the fact that the children of people who built businesses and the grandchildren of people who built businesses are just inheriting more money than they could ever use in their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Maybe not doing anything contributed, you know, that's contributory to society. 
and that lots of those dollars are flowing without being taxed. It just made me feel, again, like there's so much space for compromise, especially around tax policy. And there are a lot of ways to have a more even distribution of wealth within the United States in a way that I think still rewards hard work very generously. So I appreciated her comments. I thought she was thoughtful. Her website is great. We'll link it up in the show notes to Heather Boucher. Up next in the suit, we discuss the latest executions in Arkansas and the death penalty in America. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. It's been kind of weird to have so many executions happening in the news because I, f- I feel like we went through a pretty substantial period of time without facing these alerts that someone has been killed. And so we wanted to spend some time today reflecting on the death penalty. So earlier this month, Arkansas announced that it was planning to execute seven death row inmates in 11 days. And they had not executed anyone in, I think, about 10 years at this point. And so 
They were planning to do this because their supply of metazolam, which is a, um, I think I believe it's the tranquilizer used in the lethal injection process, was about to expire, which to me is sort of the grossest reason for executing a bunch of people at once, but we'll get to that. So the court orders came and blocked about half of the executions in Arkansas. Still, they were able to execute four um, people for the first t- yeah, for the first time in more than 10 years. So the execution, the last one on Thursday night of Kenneth Williams, has raised additional questions um, all over again about the lethal injection process because, and this is pretty graphic, but during the process, he was lurching and convulsing. So this is again, raised questions about the lethal injection process. And so we wanted to sort of just do a quick overview of the death penalty, the sort of what people are calling the lethal injection error and the issues that have raised that has raised recently and talk a little bit about how we both feel about the death penalty. I want to highly recommend Cruel and Unusual, which is a part of Radio Lab series More Perfect from last year that they did on the Supreme Court. It is a Excellent overview with regards to lethal injection, the history, how it started with like the state rep. It's a really fascinating story. And in particular, it goes through how these activists have found using the companies that produce these drugs, many are of which are in Europe and are legally prohibited from being involved in the executions of other people to basically just make it really impossibly hard for states to get their hands on these drugs to use in the lethal injection, lethal execution process. And I was not aware of the this sort of new wave of attack on the death penalty. I think that it's been pretty successful and has come into the news again because of Arkansas. Because once this drug expires, I don't think they can get any more. And I think that's why there's the rush. When I listened to that podcast, I really walked away thinking so much about how strange it is that we have gone to such lengths to Mm -hmm. sanitize the process of killing someone. And there's a part in it where they talk to someone about, is it Utah where they brought back firing squads or we're talking about bringing back firing squads? And, and they were discussing how that is a more honest way to do this, that Mm -hmm. we, we should be honest about what we're doing. You can be for it or against it, but you should be honest about what's happening here and that in a lot of ways, these drugs are trying to make us be less honest about it. Right. So a little bit of history. In 1972, the Supreme Court um, in the decision Furman versus Georgia, a 5-4 decision, that was a one-paragraph procuring opinion, which means they just – it wasn't a majority opinion written by one justice. They just agreed on the decision but not the reasoning, which I didn't know until I started sort of digging around in some of the death penalty history. And all the justices wrote sort of their own opinions of why the death penalty cases were cruel and unusual punishment and violated the Constitution. But a lot of it was about sort of the unfair application of the laws and that they, although Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall said that the death penalty in itself was cruel and unusual punishment. But the other justices sort of attacked the way that the laws were being implemented. So, in effect, the Furman decision caused all death sentences pending to um, be reduced to life imprisonment because they were saying the way you're doing this is unconstitutional. Everybody stopped doing it and tried to fix the problems they had with the application of the law. And so, in 1976, Greg v. Georgia came down upholding one of the changes um, that states went through to try to make the application of the death penalty constitutional and uh, we're, again, we're back having the death penalty. So currently, only 31 states, ha- plus the federal government, have capital punishment. We are all the only country in the Western world that has the death penalty. But about 60% of Americans are in favor of the death penalty, according to Gallup. So right now, it's really interesting. I mean, we have the death penalty, but when you look through sort of state by state, there's all these execution um, hiatuses. Like Kentucky hasn't executed since anybody since 2009 because they're pending new protocol for lethal injection. And lots and lots of states haven't executed since about 2009, 2010. So you have a lot of places where because of these problems with either people being found innocent or the lethal injection issues, there there is capital punishment, but no one's actively executing anyone. And I think that's the reason Arkansas's decision and to move forward with this, these sort of rapid executions had such an impact. I was surprised to see that the United States is only one of 58 countries in the world 
that executes people. I mean, th- that that was shocking to me. Well, and if you look at the numbers, since the Georgia, Greg v. Georgia in 1976, you've had about 7,800 defendants have been sentenced to death. This is all from the Wikipedia page on Capital Punishment in the United States that we'll link to. Over 1,400 of them have been executed. And then additionally, 158 death row inmates have been exonerated. Acquitted, charges dismissed, or pardoned based on the evidence of innocence. But none of these executed have been exonerated afterwards, which I think nobody's digging hard enough. Because if you believe that we have successfully caught all the people since DNA evidence that were ever innocently on um, sentenced to death, um, then I have a bridge I'd like to sell you. because statistically that seems all but impossible that we only started finding innocent people on death row after the invention or the of DNA evidence. Like, come on, you guys. And, and I know there's a case in Texas that they've gotten very, very close. Um, a man who was accused of burning down uh, the house with his three daughters. And there's a really great Texas monthly piece on it that I'll link to in the show notes about how basically arson evidence was just, they call it an art, not a science, which we shouldn't be putting on death people on death row based on art, not science. That's just my humble opinion. But that that they don't at this point they don't really believe he did it, but he was executed. And I remember Illinois had like seven or eight people that innocent people found on death row, and that's when they put their moratorium in effect. And so, you know, for me personally, the do I believe that it is cruel and unusual to execute people? Yes, but my bigger issue, and this is one I've had I've had a conversation on Twitter with one of our definitely more conservative listeners, Eric, is that. I do not believe we have the capacity to say with 100% certainty that we do not execute, have not and will not continue to execute innocent people and that I'm not comfortable with executing innocent people in order to get the worst of the worst. I don't think that the worst of the worst is who even even ends up on death row. So for me, it's just, it's not, it's not worth it. Well, that's the thing, right? There are a host of decisions that get you to death row. So what what happened who decided to charge you what they decided to charge mm-hmm. you with a jury being involved judges looking at evidence and judges then reexamining issues surrounding the presentation of that evidence so the decision trail is very long to get someone there the death penalty is enormously expensive because of how long that decision trail is People are held for very long periods of time before they're executed. There are almost always multiple appeals. So from an economic standpoint, how much, you know, how efficient is the death penalty? That's a, a, certainly a crude way to talk about it and not my interest, but, but it's, a, it's relevant, right? To the discussion for some people, it is, it is a very, very expensive proposition for states and for the federal government. I think I agree with you completely about the uneven application of the death penalty, the fact that we can't ensure that we aren't killing innocent people. My thinking on this has really evolved, and I'm at a place now where I'm also not comfortable with killing guilty people. Hmm. And I know that we will have some listeners whose reaction to that is, oh, but you're comfortable with abortion. And I would like to just kind of put a pin in that comparison. It's not that it's irrelevant or invalid in any way, but we've talked a lot about reproductive rights on this show. And I think that this does present some different questions and and maybe in your mind it doesn't and that's okay. But I just want to acknowledge that that's a reaction that some people are going to have and that I don't know that it's a fruitful place for us to spend a lot more time. Hmm. I have just thought so much lately about that episode of Radio Lab and the idea of the firing squad being the honest way to do this and about what we're really doing and squaring that with what's the purpose of criminal justice? Mm-hmm. And I can't find I can't find a purpose that is served by the death penalty. I can't now I've never sat in a courtroom as um the relative of a victim of a horrific crime. And so my perspective is limited in that way. But I just struggle with the state, the state that I believe should be so limited, you know, in so many ways. I can't get myself to the state should be able to end someone's life. Yeah. And it's exactly what you said. It's what's what, why are we doing this? So if the idea is that punishment I mean, I, I'm not really sure we've answered as a society, why do we punish people? Um, why do we put people in jail? 
Because if the idea is a deterrent, I don't. Th- I, I know that's that not working. Work. It does that. The death penalty is most certainly not a deterrent. There's tons and tons and tons of research on this. Nobody in a moment in which they are committing a horrendous crime is thinking, oh, I might be executed for that. That's not how our brains work. We're not, as we talk about on this podcast a lot, we're not rational creatures. We are emotional animals. And so people in the moment when they're making an emotional decision, as I believe crimes often are, then they're not, it's just, it's not a math problem. They're not going to go, okay, well, I'm going to go to death row. So I'm not going to do this. It just doesn't work like that. Are we doing it to protect ourselves? Well, if that's the case, you know, I, I believe in Brene Brown, right? Everybody's doing the best we can. Does that include murderers? Yes, but their best is dangerous. And so we have to make sure that they cannot harm people. Well, there are lots of ways to keep dangerous people from harming people besides taking their life. We can put them in jail. And actually, the it's really interesting, the Gallup poll numbers. If you present people with life in prison without the possibility of parole, then the support of the death penalty decreases a little bit. If you say, okay, this person will never get out of jail. But honestly, even that, I think, doesn't acknowledge the the reality of the way most violent crimes are committed. The majority of people, you know, not your not your Ted Bundys or your, you know, once in a generation crazy serial killers, but the majority of people who even commit heinous crimes age out. They are committed by young people. And by the time they are 40 or 50 or 60, they are no longer a threat to society. And it's why many European nations prevent even the um, I don't remember if it was Norway or Sweden where that the um, the gunman went on the island. And I mean, he killed so many people, but their law is like he can go to jail for like nine years. That's it. And then he gets out because they based on the science believe that. And I would argue correctly that people age out. Now, he is most likely mentally ill, and I believe he would stay in a mental institution even when his his time for that specific crime is over. But like we have the capability to assess people and understand how best to protect them from other people and them from themselves. And why would we continue to do this sort of archaic toss them in, throw away the key because what it makes us feel better. It doesn't make me feel any better. It makes me feel like we are, it's so draconian and you know, it doesn't make me feel safer. I think there are lots of ways to keep people safe without, executing other human beings and so if we're not punishing and we're not trying to keep in there are other ways to keep people safe i'm just not sure what we're doing i agree with all of that when i think about punishment i struggle to come up with an example where i feel like punishment has been very effective even on the level of punishing my child you Mm -hmm. know punishment has to happen sometimes but if you're punishing without teaching and developing new skills what's the point of that and and then when I think about what we're doing with juveniles in the criminal justice system, uh, several listeners commented on our social media pages about the work of Brian Stevenson, which I can't recommend enough. You know, I think that when you look at the ways that we're approaching all of criminal justice right now, we're basically just creating more criminals. Mm-hmm. We're putting people in jail for long periods of time. We're hardening them against the government. We're cutting them off from structures of social support and opportunities to develop skills and to go be a contributing member of society. And then the death penalty is the ultimate version of this. We're taking a person who could possibly in some universe contribute productively um, or at least, you know, be in a jail isolated and hopefully contributing to the functioning of that jail. I just don't I don't know what we're getting out of it. If it's totally retribution, that seems so barbaric to me. I just, I, I can't help but think that 20, 30 years from now, we're going to look back on this and think, how could we have ever done that? Mm-hmm. Well, and not to, I mean, c- come with me, listeners, come with me to hippy dippy land, because this is a little bit what I feel like when I talk about this. And a lot, my husband, including, looks at me a little cross-eyed when I go full into hippy dippy uh, territory with regards to punishment and discipline. But I read this really great parenting book called the, I think it's called the unconditional parent. I'll put it in the show notes. And his thing is, you know, we have this behavioral mindset that you are, your value is based on your behavior. And we teach children that my love is conditional on your behavior. Now we don't think that, and we don't say that, but when you say, when you, when you are behave in a way that I find acceptable, I will remove you from my presence and let you cry and time out because I don't like the way you behaved. There's really sort of a one takeaway from that 
is this guy's argument. So, I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what you just said, like with regards to punishment. Is it actually helping anything? What are we teaching kids when we punish them? It it seems to me, you know, the, the sort of trite insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. That's what we do from when we start punishing a two-year-old. Look, I've tried. I've tried all types of punishment. And the only thing that seems to help is they grow up and they learn from watching you and from conversations. Like I've tried spanking, I've tried timeout. And from that point on, all the way through, like you were saying, the the sort of criminalization of kids in schools, all the way through prison, we do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Nobody comes out of, well, I won't say nobody. It is so rare. We know from the recidivism rates that people come out of prison are like, you know what? I learned my lesson. I'm ready to contribute to society right now. Nobody thinks that's what happens. So why are we doing this? Why are we spending all this money and ruining all these lives? Because it doesn't just affect the person when even if it's retribution in your mind, you want to punish someone. Be clear. We are all connected. And if you punish somebody by throwing them in jail for the rest of their lives, they have family members and children and other people. And you're affecting those people, too. And we're all connected and you're eventually affecting yourself. And I just, like I said, not to get like super hippy dippy, but I just don't, I don't think that our, I think our approach to like our sort of pure behavioral approach to our fellow human beings, be they children, be they um, people in the criminal justice system is so archaic and is really not based on a kind of updated understanding of how we make decisions, how we want people to make decisions, what sort of behaviors we want to reward, or even just sort of our ethics or values, at least not mine. Well, I think right now what we're doing is taking the first tragedy or set of tragedies and multiplying them exponentially Mm -hmm. by creating all these new tragedies for all the people involved. And again, I have not fortunately been victimized in a way that gives me this the seat of the person who wishes for the death of someone who did something horrible. And I was talking to my husband about this because he said, you know, I hear you on everything. If someone hurt our children, I'd want to do it myself. And I said, I totally understand that and it would not give us our children back. And then we would live brutalized, I believe, psychologically by having participated in all of that. And I just don't, I I guess I'm not offering very good solutions right now, but I am saying I don't believe in the death penalty as a deterrent. Certainly the death penalty is not intended as a rehabilitator. I don't think it makes us safer. It is just about retribution. It's not economically efficient. And it seems like we are finding out every time we try to make it more humane that there's nothing humane about it. So I feel like we need a new way. I mean, the this this lethal injection era, if it wasn't people's lives and it wasn't so gruesome, is is arguably laughable. Like the idea that we are going to create the right cocktail of drugs and, oh, we're pursuing all these pharmaceuticals and buying them on the black market and just we cannot see the forest through the trees. The right combination of an injections is not going to make this less cruel and unusual to execute someone. We're taking a life. How is that not cruel and unusual? Like, I just, it's so weird. It's all just so bizarre when you really kind of take a step back and see it from high up. You know what I mean? And man, put that pharmaceutical research and money into cancer drugs. And I just, it's such a enormous infusion of resources into something to what make us feel a little bit better about what we're doing. Well, and that's the thing. When you were saying that about Chad, that's what I wanted to say. Like, you know, I, I have been the a victim of violent crime. When that happened at my high school, you know, I consider myself a victim of violent crime. Now, has anything ever happened to an immediate family member? No. How would I feel if my children, something happened to my children or if I was attacked? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not going to say that I would. However... I think the idea as a society that we, you know, it's sort of how we deal with anything outside the norm. We don't like the idea that someone's been victimized or 
are grief stricken and it's like, we'll just give what we'll give you whatever you want. So we'll fix it as if executing the person who did this is going to fix it, is going to bring that person back, is going to make that person feel that person's family feel better. And I think it's also, if I'm being honest, I think it's so sort of shallow because not shallow for the people to feel, but it feels like a shallow reaction on the on the part of our society, right? It's like we just want to do something flashy and obvious that we feel like we've done something to help you, but we don't actually want to address maybe the problems that got your family member into that spot in the first place, right? We don't really want to make it better and really, you know, honor the memory of your loved one and prevent it from happening again. We just want the quick emotional fix of the revenge and the retribution, and we can all go back and pretend like it's better. That's what it always feels like to me, as opposed to saying, what happened? How can we keep this from ever happening to someone again? We just say, well, we'll keep that person from ever doing it again. We'll kill them, and then we'll move on. And it's just, I don't know. It just, it so bothers me. And look, I, I'm not going to say I know how I feel. I don't know if, you know, the... I don't judge people in crisis because I'm not in a crisis. So I don't know what would happen if I was in a crisis and something violent and terrible happened to one of my family members. Um, But I don't want to feel, I don't want society to just, you know, give me what I want and so that I'll go away and they don't have to think about this awful, painful, terrible thing that happened to me. I want you to think about it and try to make it better. Well, I think that in that way, justice is contextual. Mm-hmm. And maybe we need to come to a place where we try to be better than just. I tell people a lot of times about very trivial things in life that you will be much happier when you stop looking for justice. Yeah. Yes, this person wronged you. You will be so much happier if you just let go of that and don't wish for an equal wrong to happen to them. Yeah, it's so true. Well, and it reminds me of this article I just read that like, this even the idea that you'll be happier like that's sort of a new invention for most of human history we weren't looking to try to be happy we accepted that the world was unfair and injustice happened and it was to be survived and you know this is sort of a new thing that we're gonna we're gonna find justice and everything will be fair and we'll all be happy like ah, we might all be a little bit better off if we were taught from the beginning that that's not how things work It's not how things work. And also, I think that we can be more enlightened if, as you said, as a society, I don't think either of us are advocating that the the families of victims have any obligations to anyone in these situations. But as a society, if our motivation was less about retribution and more about prevention, I think we'd be a lot better off. Yeah. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. 
dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Next up in the heels, we talk about what else is on our mind besides politics this week. So, Beth, are you watching The Handmaid's Tale? I have watched the first episode. I cannot promise that I'm going back for more. I mean, well, okay. I think I worked myself up into such a tizzy about it that – so, like, I, f- I was going to watch it the first night we were in New Orleans, and I was like, no, I just can't do this right now. So I watched The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks with the one and only Oprah Winfrey, and it's really good, and everybody should watch it. Cried a lot. It was – it was. I wouldn't call it feel good, but it ain't no handmade still. Let's just put it clear. That so book then, is so amazing, too. I just have to drop in a plug for that book. It I is I know. I really phenomenal. do. I want to read the book now. So – then the next night I was like, okay, it's time. It's time to watch Tammy Cell. So I watched the first episode the first night and then the net or the second night we were there. And then the third night I watched two and three. I didn't have any nightmares. I thought this is a bad idea to watch this. I think once I got into it, I was like, you know, I do a lot of, okay, this actually couldn't happen in the United States. I think that, well, I say that I think that the, the smart decision Margaret Adwood made was to do all the infertility stuff because I don't know if anybody watches the leftovers, but I think they're pursuing sort of similar questions. When something happens that people can't explain, it leads them to do all manner of crazy, crazy things. So that part I I buy, but it's like when, you know, the episode where they, they seize all the women's financial accounts, I'm like, yeah, like the heiresses of Walmart are like going to hand over their billions freely. Like you gotta forget, like there's a lot of rich women with a lot of resources and power like yeah if you're middle income they're going to seize your income no problem or maybe i don't know maybe those people have already cut tail and run by that point leaving the rest of us schmoes to become handmaids or marthas or yikes i don't know so i don't remember a lot about the book the handmaid's tale i remember that i thought it was good i remember that i liked alias grace better i love margaret atwood's so we should say though you and i both read this our freshman year at transy was required reading in the foundations of liberal arts class all freshmen are required to take at transy we did and so you know i wasn't passionate about sitting down to watch this but i felt like okay i'll give it a whirl because i love margaret atwood it's then, so antithetical to your TV watching habits. Though. Well, it is. And it reminded me why I have the TV watching habits that I do. <laughs> because I'm laying in bed like, why am I deliberately making myself feel like this? I felt <laughs> anxious. My muscles tensed up. I was sad. I was pissed off. Like, and and here's what made it even worse. I had just been reading on the plane this fantastic book that our listener Tamala gave me about why a lot of countries go into states of destabilization or even fail as countries after long periods of prosperity. And the first chapter of that book 
is devoted to the fact that birth rates start to decline after long periods of prosperity. Oh. Um, the author says that apparently a college degree is like the best contraception on earth because college-educated women have fewer children and wealthier families tend to have fewer children. And so I'm already in this state of thinking about birth rates and such. And then I turn on The Handmaid's Tale. I don't know. I think it's thoughtful. I think it's smart. I think it's very well done. The acting is good. Yeah, Elizabeth I Moss is baller. Always just, has been. I just don't want to feel all worked up. I mean, I want to turn on Top Chef and feel really good for somebody about their, I don't know, ceviche. I do enjoy the questions about what what does it mean to survive? What does it mean when she, you know, she says, I intend to survive? Would that be enough just to stay alive in the system and just the different approaches that human beings take in situations in which they are not in control of their decisions and are enforced into all these traumatic situations? And in, in our, on a related note, I went to the Whitney Plantation and was incredibly affected by the experience. I highly recommend it. It is about an hour outside New Orleans. It was written up in the New York Times, and we'll put the link in the show notes, um, about a year ago. It was a plantation property acquired by a man, a man, I believe his name is John Cummings, and he was just acquiring the property as an investment, but because it had been held by an energy company previously, there was all this history that they had to do in order to maybe drill. And so he acquired all the history of the property and realized like, oh my gosh, no, this needs to be turned into a historical sort of museum slash experience. And the way they do it is so profound. So first of all, the first thing I noticed is the guide never uses the word slaves. She says enslaved population or enslaved bodies or enslaved people, which I really affected me because I thought, yes, it's so it's I've been trying to do it in my own speech. And it's very hard because the word slave is so with, you know, throughout the way we talk about that period of history, but I've been really trying hard to say enslaved population. But anyway, because, you know, that's not the entirety of someone's identity. And in The Handmaid's Tale, you know, they call them handmaids. They call them Marthas. They strip your identity, who you, the entirety of who you are is this role. And, you know, the Whitney, they do such a good job. You kind of, you, you walk through memorials listing the names of everyone enslaved there through a memorial of uh, child, young children and um, babies that were lost at this one particular uh, records kept at a church. Then you walk back through the slave quarters, through the the back of the property, and then into the, the, the quote-unquote big house. You never walk up the sort of grand driveway with the oak trees. You walk through the back of the house, and then you can see that part, but they don't they don't build it up. Like, you're not there to take in the like this pretty house, right? You're there to, to understand and as I stood on that property and sort of looked around and realized like, oh, my God, you know, you hear a lot and particularly with the Underground Railroad and a couple other um, recent writings, there's been a lot of talk about sort of runaway, the runaway slave experience. And I just stood on that property and thought, I don't even know where I would run. It's so far from anything. And she um the guide did a lot a lot of talking about a sort of the acts of resistance and how there were always acts of resistance and you know and and I thought about that moment in the handmaid's tell where she says I'm gonna survive and like this the act of resist sort of survival was an act of resistance in a situation like that. And I mean it was just so upsetting and so I mean, I was so embarrassed of how little I knew of a lot of the slave history and particularly sort of the um after the transatlantic slave trade was shut down, how many slaves came down from the upper South to the, to the deep South and how much harder that experience was um, sort of sold down the river. That expression, the reason that was such a terrible thing is because your most slaves only in, most enslaved people only survived. She said like 10 years once they reached Louisiana or um, working in a sugar plantation. And so it was just, it was a really profound experience and just, putting yourself in that situation and thinking, oh, my God, what would I do? Which is harder, sort of what you do this whole entire time you're watching The Handmaid's Tale. But, yeah, it's not not pleasant thought experiences. I'll give you that. But, I mean, I think they're important. <laughs> I think the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, which is in Cincinnati, is an excellent experience, too, to kind of put you in that mindset and to really come face-to-face -face with our history and the atrocities of our history and also the unbelievable spirit and perseverance of people who made it out. 
So um, can't recommend that enough if you're in the Cincinnati area. So you don't think you're going to keep watching The Handmaid's Tale? Oh, I'm definitely not going to watch it the, as the last thing before I go to sleep. <laughs> I might go back to it. You know, I did – kind of related to your point, I hate to make this connection because it's a, a totally different thing. But thinking about that that mindset, the headspace that you have to be in to survive something, that is why I so love Alias Grace, which is another Margaret Atwood book. I don't know if you've ever read it, Sarah. I haven't. It's so good. It's about a woman who is accused of a crime and what she thinks and tells people and tells herself about it. And I wrote probably the best paper I've ever written about it at Transylvania talking about how what constitutes history is really just a a quilt made up of all of these little pieces of experience and memory and what becomes true you know, what is true changes over time, right? It goes from what's true to what becomes true for every person who's touched something. It's it's such an interesting book and I think shows Margaret Atwood as a real genius in terms of understanding the way the human mind works. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We again are in the minute, we're starting off our membership drive and you have one week only to support the show on Patreon and get access to our Q&A with Beth and I. So go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and you can click become a supporter in the top right-hand corner. If you're already on Patreon, you can search us that way too. And help us out. We'd really appreciate it. And we really appreciate our supporters who have already signed up and supported the show. We promise for new listeners that we don't usually so thoroughly explore the dark side of humanity. And (laughs) hopefully Friday will be in a lighter place. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you to our producer, Nicholas Holland, and to our chief creative officer, Dante Lima, for all the work they do to make Pantsu Politics possible. And to all of you for making this community so special. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Pantsu Politics, or Instagram at Pantsu Politics. Please leave us your feedback and send us your ideas for show topics and Pantsuit Primers on social media, or you can email us at sarah at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com or beth at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.